You are listening to Taproot Faith, seeking rootedness in Christ in a rootless world. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. You may be seated, by the way. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that as we look at your word, as we examine these events that you have brought forth in the history of the world, that you would reveal to us not only those things which happened, those bare events in their history, but you would reveal to us their meaning, that you would enlighten our hearts and minds with the truth of your gospel, and that you would help us to understand what is the depth and the height and the width of your will and your glorious, glorious person. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I'm sure you noticed on our bulletin that I have today as the first Sunday after Christmas slash the circumcision and holy name of our Lord Jesus, that, which is technically tomorrow, it's technically tomorrow, but I uh, used my pastoral prerogative and transferred the feast, as we say. And there's one thing that I want to do quickly, which is to remind you that Christmas is not over. Christmas is not over. We think of the Christmas season as that season leading up to Christmas. But as I mentioned many times over the last couple of months, we call that time Advent. And that Christmas is a season of 12 days after Christmas, leading up to the Feast of Epiphany, which is next week. And so today and next Sunday, I say to you, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Because Christmas is a wonderful reality. And that this idea of stretching things out in periods after a commemoration is something that goes a long way back into the church. A long way back into the church. And today, or tomorrow rather, is the eighth day after Christmas. And so that is why we commemorate Christ's circumcision and his the giving of his name, the formal giving of his name in the synagogue. And this particular commemoration for us, most of us, when we're reading Luke's gospel in this section, as we're reading through here, we might just be inclined to just sort of pass on by this and say, yes, eight days he was circumcised. That's what they're supposed to do. Good Jewish family, that's what they do. And just move on with our lives and not think anything of it. But throughout church history... This was considered to be a really important commemoration, a very important thing to, to really consider. And I want, to, I want to take time this morning considering the circumcision and the giving of the name of the Lord this morning. Now, we heard already this morning, we heard in our Genesis passage, the institution of the covenant with Abraham under the form of circumcision. Now, to us, even though that is a medical procedure that happens now, there are, it is still a religious procedure. Observant Jews still do it. Muslims do it. 
Various African tribes do it. It is still a religious rite. And it was at the time that God instituted it with Abraham as well. It wasn't something new. This was not something Abraham was unaware of. This was something that was practiced elsewhere. But the difference was, was that God commanded Abraham that, your, that you and your offspring will be circumcised in covenant with me. In covenant with me. This is not a covenant with some other God. This is not a covenant with some other divinity or some other deity or some other tribe or whatever it is. You are entering into covenant with me. And I've said this before, but it's always worth repeating that the terminology for making a covenant, biblically speaking, is not to draft a covenant like we do today. We might go to a, you know, we might go to a a notary or a, a lawyer's office and we might draft a covenant. We might draw up a covenant or a contract. But in the ancient world, it was not said that you drew up a covenant or you wrote a covenant. It is said that you cut a covenant. You cut a covenant. And usually it's because a sacrifice was made and blood was shed in order for the covenant to be ratified. And here God tells his people... He tells his people through Abraham, their father, that your people will keep this as a remembrance of their covenant that I'm making with you today. Now, we might think that this is a rather odd rite, a rather strange ritual. But it makes a great deal of sense when one actually thinks about what the Lord said. The Lord said to Abraham that this will be a covenant for you and for your children and your, all your generations after you. And the reason why circumcision was chosen was because the mark of God's covenant is given in that most tender part of the anatomy, which ensures future generations. And that's as tenderly as I can put that. But it is to ensure the remembrance of that covenant being passed on in perpetuity from one generation to another by the very biological avenue through which those future generations come. And so God is saying to Abraham, you and yours after you are in covenant with me. And this is the sign of that covenant. It is a sign of covenant. But not only is it a sign of covenant, not only is it a simple ritual, it is also, when one thinks about this, it is also deeply, it is deeply uncomfortable. It is deeply uncomfortable. You can, one, one can think about this in the centuries before painkillers and local anesthesia. It's no picnic for little boys now. But I can only imagine what it was like then. It's painful. There's the risk of infection. And it's also, especially for adult converts, there's also a bit of a degrading aspect to it. It's a bit humiliating. Your dignity is sort of chiseled away by having to undergo this right that God commands. And I believe that that is precisely all of these things together are precisely what God is asking Abraham to do. He's saying to him, you and all of your male children after you are going to come to me. You are going to be consecrated to me in covenant. 
Your blood will be shed by the cutting of the covenant as a symbol of your covenant. It will be uncomfortable because humility is uncomfortable. And you will place yourself below the dignity of God. You will place yourself below the dignity of the majesty of the royal decree of God. All of these things together, God commands Abraham to do. And it's all encapsulated in the right and in the covenant in circumcision. But also, not only is circumcision a covenantal right with the people of God in the old covenant, not only is it a sign of ethnic identity as a child of Abraham, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that circumcision is also a symbol of faith. It's also a symbol of faith, which I will just say as as an aside, um, lends a great deal of credence to the baptism circumcision uh, dichotomy. That if circumcision was given to children on eighth day of life and it was a sign of faith, then why do we have a problem with baptizing our babies? as a sign of faith. But that's an aside, and that's a tangent for another day. And don't tempt me, because I will do it. But here we find this covenant, this established covenant with Abraham, and all the generations after him, all the generations after him, of his people, of the children of Abraham, will continue in this practice, one generation to another, all the way down to the coming of Jesus. So that's the circumcision. But we're also told that in this particular day, on the eighth day, Jesus was given his name. He was given a name. And this is a part of the circumcision rite, even today. Just as much as it's a part of the historical baptism service. I remember when I baptized uh, Izzy, when she was three months old, I think she was. As part of the service, I held the baby and I asked my, my wife, who was standing there, as part of the service, it says, name this child. Name this child. And when the name is spoken, the water is poured over the head. And the name and the covenant sign go together as a recognition that this child is given this name. And that that child, by that name, is recognized by God in his covenant and by his people. And the name was always extremely important because names in the ancient world carried weight. They carried power. They denoted essence. When God said to Adam in the garden to name all the creatures, and he gave them their name when they were brought to them, he was not simply, they didn't simply bring him a donkey and he said, you're Charlie. He came and named it by seeing what it was. And he said, you are donkey. You are lion. You are tiger. And when God brings his wife to him, he looks to her and says, you are woman. For you were taken out of man. He gives names that show the essence of what they are. And that was why it was so important to choose the name for a child. And why it was so important that they tended to stick to family names. We see earlier that when John the Baptist is brought to be circumcised and his father is stricken dumb by doubting the angel 
And they asked his mother, what do you name this child? And she said, his name is John. And they rebuke her. What do they say to her? Nobody in your family has this name. And it is not until his father takes the tablet and writes, his name is John, fulfilling the word of the angel given to him, that his tongue is loosened. And he's able to sing the great canticle of Zechariah. And his name, that name of John, Yohanan in Hebrew, the reason why that is so important is because God commanded that he be named that name because John, Yohanan, means God is gracious. God is gracious. Not only was God gracious to his parents, to John's parents, but God was gracious to the people of Israel by giving them the final Old Covenant prophet, John the Baptist, to proclaim the coming of the Messiah who would bring grace and truth, as John chapter 1 says. God is gracious, and so he spoke that his name will be John. Likewise with Jesus, his name was given to him, not by his human foster father, not by Joseph, but by his real father who had the right to name him. And he said by the mouth of the angel to Mary and Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. You will call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And of course, Jesus is just the Greek version of Yeshua, Hebrew, and from Hebrew. We all know that. And his name, Yeshua, means salvation. It is the same name as Joshua. Salvation. He will save his people from their sins. Now, what's astounding about this? There's a few things that's astounding about this whole thing. As I've mentioned many times before, the general consensus among many of the fathers is that in the Old Testament, when God speaks... Whenever we hear about the voice of God or we hear God speaking to Abraham or the angel of the Lord saying this or that to Moses or whoever else it may be, that the fathers are largely agreed that the one that is speaking is the pre-incarnate Christ, that it is the word of God, the second person of the Trinity who is speaking because he is, after all, the word of God. He speaks. And so what that means then is that the one who spoke to Abraham and said to him, you and your sons after you will be circumcised and gave that as a covenant law is now appearing in the flesh and in utter humility submitting himself to the law that he himself gave. If your mind does not go to the conversation that Jesus has with John the Baptist in the Jordan River... I would like to direct you there now. Because what does Jesus say to John when John protests to baptizing Jesus? He says, it is right that we do this because we must fulfill all righteousness. And here at eight days old, Christ is brought by the providence of God to the rabbi, to the moil, to the synagogue, to place himself under the covenant For the first time, to place himself in obedience under the law that he gave. 
to place himself in humility that he may begin as an eight-day-old infant boy to begin filling, fulfilling all righteousness. Even as a babe in swaddling clothes, he was fulfilling all righteousness. And what boggles the mind, what boggles the mind is that we're told in Scripture that all things are made for him and in him and by him and that in him all things hold together. And when one looks at the manger, when one looks at a nativity scene and thinks about the reality of Christ in the manger, we don't often consider that the child in the manger is directing space dust a billion miles away from earth. The babe in the manger is ensuring that I take the next breath I take. The babe in the manger is providentially guiding the fluttering of the wings of hummingbirds two continents or a continent away. The babe in the manger is the one who is directing the course of all of creation. And here, that great one whom the heavens cannot contain is contained in a small infant and is placed under the knife of a servant of God to be circumcised under his own law. The only one on earth who never needed the law spoken to him because he already lived it and was the embodiment of the perfect law. But he submits himself to it. And he does so for us and for our salvation. He does so for us. Because all of Christ's life from the moment that he is made flesh in the womb of the virgin on Annunciation Day, all the way through to the time where he was crucified and rose again, to this very moment when he sits in the flesh at the right hand of his Father, his every action was for the salvation of men and women, the salvation of his people, and the renewal of all creation. We talked about this yesterday at men's, after men's group. That Christ comes not simply to, as we said in Sunday school this morning, not just to save my sweet little heart, but rather, but rather, even more so, that there is a much more cosmic reality to it. That he comes not simply to to redeem my heart and my morality, but he comes in human flesh, in matter, to redeem time and space and matter itself in a child in a manger. If that does not blow your mind, I don't know what to say to you. But even more, even more than that, even more, Christ is laid upon the table and the rabbi comes with a knife and he says to his father, Joseph, name this child. And Joseph says, Yeshua, and he is circumcised. We've already established that the circumcision is a rite that is humiliating, it is painful, and it is bloody. Christ is laid as an eight-day-old child on the table, and his father says, Yeshua, salvation. And the moment salvation leaves the lips of his father, Christ's blood is shed for us for the first time. That Christ's blood 
and his proclamation of salvation bookends his earthly life. That he is the child on the table bleeding under the law in fulfillment of the covenant, in perfect obedience, while the word salvation is said. And at the end of his life, he hangs upon the cross, bloody and humiliated. And he says to his father, it is finished. What's finished? The fulfillment, his perfect fulfillment of the covenant. And Christ's earthly life is book-ended by obedience and by blood, beginning to end. And it is all under the name of salvation. It is all under the name of salvation. And this is why, if you haven't picked up on this yet, that even little single verse passages of scripture that seem to simply tell us just bare historical matter, tell us so much more. That Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And that by trusting in him, by calling out to him for our salvation, the blood that he shed, both on the table and on the cross, all of his obedience and all of his suffering, all of his willingness to love his father where we cannot, all of those, the whole life of Christ is ours. It's ours. And so, brothers and sisters, I say to you, here in the middle of the Christmas season, I don't, I don't send you away today with an app, application to-do list. I just hope that when we think about this, when we look at the truth and the, the reality of all that Christ did for us from the moment he descended to earth to be with us until the moment he was taken up again and is in heaven with us. My only hope is not that you'll walk away with a to-do list, but that you will walk away simply loving that Christ more than you did when you got here. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for sending us your son. We thank you that in humility he endured pain and privation and temptation and ultimately suffering and death on our behalf, that he was obedient where we could never, and that more importantly, he fulfilled the great commandments to love you and to love his neighbors perfectly, and that in him we can have forgiveness for not doing so ourselves. Father, we ask you to write the truths of Christ upon our hearts. We ask you to change our own hearts that we may love him more dearly, that we may seek to imitate him more closely, and that in him and by his righteousness and through his blood, we may be, that we may be approved by you and worthy to worship in your sight. And we thank you, and we praise you, and we honor you in the name of Christ, the infant King and the risen Lord. Amen. <laughs>